Nahum chapter 2 as we finish this minor prophet this evening. Started it last week and we'll finish it tonight. Nahum chapter 2. As a Christian, have you ever been weighted down, so weighted down by sin that you wished it could be all over? Have you ever felt like you're in the middle of a battle? of a raging battle and it seemed like the enemy had a stronghold on you. And you think, I know my commander is going to win this battle. He has the power and he has promised that he will, but, but where is he? Where is God? What, what, why has he left us out here to fight seemingly alone? Well, if you ever had thoughts like that, then you are not alone. The scriptures are clear that the thirst for victory grows stronger and stronger in a world that grows worse and worse. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 22 and 23 as I read. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul says, we, we as believers and we as a creation are groaning because of the, the nature of this sin-cursed world. And we look forward to a better day. Paul goes on to say in that passage that the, the essence of hope is, is not seen. The victory is not final because if hope were seen, he says, then it's not hope at all. You see, when when we are with Christ, we no longer will have to hope. Our faith will be sight. Sometimes when I think about Christ's crucifixion, I, I think about what Christ could have done. They mock Him and say, Christ, if you are the Christ, then why don't you come down from the cross? And I think, why didn't he? Wouldn't that be great if he just came down and mopped the floor with those people and showed them who really was the king? And then I think of the evil in this world that seems to be winning at every turn and they seem to have so much happiness, so much money, so much fun and many good times at our expense. We get mistreated and maligned, and ridiculed, and scorned. And I think like Isaiah in Isaiah 64.1, to pray to God, Oh, that You would just rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before You. Just end it all. The battle is raging. We can't save ourselves. God, only You can defeat our enemies. So please, save us from this cruel sin-cursed world, and yet all the while, it seems as if God does nothing. It seems as if God is not there. Where is God? Who is in control? I mean, I know His power. I've seen it. I know that he, what He said He will do. But it's just sometimes He doesn't seem like He's in control of everything. I believe that the people of Judah were thinking the same thing. Where is God? Where is He? Who's in control here? Because it seems like things are, are getting far too hard, out of hand. 
We saw last week in Nahum 1 that God indeed is in control, that He is an avenging God. Verse 2, being slow to anger and, and great in power. But, but God is saying with Judah, don't fear. Okay? Because the Lord by no means will leave the guilty unpunished just because it looks like they are winning and they are, they are in control in some way or that Satan has the power. Don't allow yourself to believe that lie. God is in control. And so Nahum comes to encourage the people of Judah, and I think by, uh, uh, by connection us as well, that indeed he is in control and that he will judge his enemies, that there is no need to fear or to lose heart. So what we need to see this evening is that we as believers ought to take heart and realize that God is in control and that God will judge His enemies. No enemy will be able to stand against Him. Let's read Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The judgment of God upon Nineveh reads in these two chapters much like an eyewitness account as if it's already happened. But it hasn't happened. It's still future for these people. But, but God's plan is so sure that even though it hasn't happened at this point in their lives, it's as sure as if it had happened. Because God's plan always will come to pass. And here what God is saying is that He will destroy His enemies. God will restore His enemies and, and restore His people. We see that He will destroy His enemies in verse 1. You see, he's, he's referred to here, God is, as the one who scatters. The nation, that is Nineveh or Assyria, they, they, are, they, are, they had been responsible for scattering many people, for sending many people into exile, and God says, now I am the one who will scatter. I am against you. See, I'm going to win this battle. So you better prepare yourself. And that's why he starts saying sarcastically, you see here at the end of verse 1, man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon up all your strength. See what happens. Okay? Bring it all together. Whatever you got, bring it up against me. You're not going to win. Okay? So in a sarcastic way, God is saying, prepare for battle as if that will help. Because what God has in store is that He will not just destroy His enemies for the sake of destroying His enemies, but so that He will restore His people, verse 2. And He gives them a message of hope that this destruction of their enemy would result in, notice, splendor of Jacob and splendor of Israel. It would be like the days of old when Israel enjoyed great prosperity in their own land. God said, that time is coming again, Judah. Don't fear. Okay, I know you saw Israel and they've already been led off into captivity and now you're next. But that is not going to be forever. Don't worry. Okay, I am still true to my promise. I am still powerful to save. And so you can depend on me and I will have my and, and, and my enemies will have their day in court. In verses 3-13, through 13, we see that God has power over His enemies. And we see in, in the first four verses there, verses 3-6, through six, the onslaught of the enemies. 
The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantelet is set up. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. We see in verses 3 and 4 the movement of the chariots. That is, the enemies of Nineveh or the enemies of Assyria. You remember, Nineveh is one of the main strongholds of the empire of Assyria. So when, when the scriptures refer to Nineveh, they're also referring to the greater uh, group of people, and that is the Assyrians, which would fall to the Babylonians here. And, and what God is saying is now they're coming. These chariots are on their way. And in verse 3, it talks about the shields and their, their, the warriors being dressed in red. The idea is that blood's going to be shed. That, that, that bloodshed is about to take place. And these people are so ready to, to, to we could say, have their blood that, uh, that, that they have this, this eagerness among them. Verses, the second part of verse 3 and verse 4. The enemies of Nineveh are rushing to the walls fast and furious. And we see that, that they look as torches, verse 4, verse 4. Their appearance is like torches. The idea there is that all this metal that's coming towards them with the light shining off of it, it looks like there's a whole army of torches coming, advancing toward them. And these enemies of God's enemies will have the victory because God has caused them to, God will have caused them to have the victory. And their defenses will be of no help to them, verses five and six. We see the attack on Nineveh, verse five. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march, they hurry to her wall, and the mantlet is set up. The, the one who scatters, verse 1, is the one who is now calling them to war. It's time to go to battle. He's calling his nobles to war. They would, they would rush, these Babylonians would rush to the wall so quickly that they would, as verse 5 says, they would stumble. They would stumble over each other because they're so eager to get there and start the battle. Now, Nineveh was a very secure city. They were uh, very fortified in that they had a moat about 150 feet wide that had been filled. And in order to, for, that, for the enemy to get, a, get to Nineveh, they had to cross the moat. And once they got there, they had a wall that was several feet thick, eight miles uh, around, and it had 15 gates. So as a city, Nineveh was very well protected, and they didn't think that they could lose. They thought they were in a very good position. But what we find at the end of verse 5 is that Babylon employs what what is called the mantelet there. The mantelet is a fortified covering that would be used to to uh, deflect artillery or, or um, the uh, arrows or spears that are thrown at them and so that they would not be able to advance or, or they would be able to advance against their enemies and Babylon would be protected as they come to the wall. And we find in verse 6 that Nineveh, although very fortified, is in fact... Um, beatable. They are defeatable. Verse 6, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. Now Nineveh was 
uh, very strong in the fact that they had three rivers coming into it. And that was good because they needed to have constant water supply. But what would happen was, uh, what uh, the historians think is that Babylon would probably have dammed up the rivers so that they would not have any water supply. That's one of the first things that these guys do when they go into battle. They stop the water supply so that people have to, uh, they're going to start thirsting. And they're, obviously the animals would start dying and all sorts of other problems. And so this would go on over several days. Well, what Babylon did was they dammed it up and then they released the dam, and what, which would cause a flooding effect to come into the city of Nineveh. And it would do what verse 6 says. It completely dissolves the palaces. That is, it just wipes it out because of the floodwaters. And uh, so we have this great onslaught of the enemies. And then we have, now the, the, the Babylonians now have breached the wall of the Ninevites. And we see here in verses 7-10 through 10, the plundering of the city. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. All her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop! Stop! But no one turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. For there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. We see in verses 7-8 the departure of the inhabitants, that they are being removed from their own hometown. That these people are being led off, perhaps into exile, perhaps into slavery, whatever it is. They're, they very well could be taking the idols with them. There was a, a significant idol that was worshipped in Nineveh called Ishtar. So some people think that in verse 7, when it says, She is stripped, she is carried away, it's speaking of this idol. But even the servant girls couldn't escape. You see how they cry out in the morning? Uh, verse 7, All her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves. They're crying out because they cannot escape. We have Nineveh referred to in verse 8 as a pool of water. That is, it's an oasis. It used to be a place... Of, of rest or restoration in the middle of the desert, a place that everybody would want to go to. But now it's going to be a wasteland as we see in later verses. And so now what Nahum does in, in verses 8 and following is he takes us into the middle of the battle as if we're there. And so he, he says, here's the, here's the kind of cries you hear during this battle. Verse 8, Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop! Stop! But no one turns back. And then more more yelling and crying. This is probably on the part of the Babylonians. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. And so he takes us into the middle of battle and shows what's going on to hear, our, hear the sounds for ourselves, particularly for the people of Judah who are reading this uh, letter that's addressed directly to them. And then verses 9 and 10, we see the removal of wealth and power. See, uh, uh, verse 10, she is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. It's as if um, the Babylonians are saying to the people of Nineveh, oh, you're real, you're real scary now. 
You and your fortified city, hearts are really melting at you and knees are really knocking. We're really afraid of you. No longer were they a a strong foe, but they would be, um, in an ironic way, um, turned to a place of servanthood or utter destruction. Really an unusual way to talk about such a dominant city over a long period of time. And and so we see the plundering of the city. And God's power is continued to be seen in this chapter as we see the taunt that comes directly from the Lord in verses 11-13. through 13. Now the Lord gets involved and He says, okay, here's your enemies, the Babylonians making fun of you because you have no power against them. What you really don't understand is that it, I am behind it. Verse 11. Where's the den of lions and the feeding place of young lions? Where's the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots and smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. We see in verses 11 and 12 that this taunt comes from probably on behalf of God that that these people who used to be the hunters, that is, they used to go out and hunt their prey, now have become the hunted. Now they're on the receiving end. That's why this imagery here is is here of the lion. They used to be this strong lion, and now what are they called? They're called the prey. Now they're the ones who are being sought after. And God tells us the reason for why they were being sought after in verse 13. Notice, Behold, I am against you. Now here's a theme that, that, that Micah or Nahum had, had talked about briefly, um, and, but now it becomes more prevalent that God is against these people and there's nothing that... There's nothing or no one that can stand against him. Look back to verse 1. You'll see this theme. It starts there, but now it becomes more explicit, more um, more evident. Verse 1, the one who scatters has come up against you. Okay, so God is against them. Then verse 13, behold, I am against you, God says. And then notice verse 5 of chapter 3. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. You can't think of more serious words from an Almighty God. More sobering words to come from God's lips. God is not just going to stay away from Assyria. That I, I'm just, We're just going to separate for a while. Okay, I'll let you do your thing over there and I'll do my thing over here. He says, I am actively opposing you. Imagine yourself as the recipient of those words. From an Almighty God, I am against you. That His patience has ended. The Lord had been slow to anger with these people. He had had been forbearing with them, but but He will not let, as we saw in chapter 1, He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so there is coming a time for their judgment and now is the time. And thankfully, 
for those of us who are in Christ, we do not have to face that judgment ever. We don't have to ever be concerned about God saying to us, I am against you. Because He's already taken that statement that should have come to us, I am against you, sinner, and He pointed it on his, to His Son on the cross. And He said, I am against you. And He poured out His wrath upon His Son so that we wouldn't have to ever experience uh, the reality of standing before Him when He says those words. You see, God is powerful over His enemies. He is in control here. He has the power. And what we're going to find here in chapter 3 is that God's judgment is inescapable. It cannot be uh, run from. No one can flee from His judgment. It's inescapable. And so let's begin reading in chapter 3, verses 1-4. through We'll see the slaughtered inhabitants. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. Feel yourself right there in battle. Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming. Many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. God gives here an indictment on Assyria. And He tells us the reason for their destruction. He said, this is going to be be a serious judgment on you, Assyria. Because of your lying, because of, of your failure to tell the truth, because of the fact that you're a violent country, that you're cruel and bloodthirsty because you're greedy, you're a pillaging nation, you've preyed on other nations and and filled your city with the goods of those nations, you've benefited at the expense of other people wrongly, and now you have become God's prey. But, uh, But He also gives a message of hope. He gives a message of hope. This destruction of enemies would result in splendor for Israel, similar to what we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That the reason for this judgment is, yes, to vindicate Himself, that is God, but also to, to exalt his, his people, His own people, to free them from their oppression. And the reason for their destruction is found at the end of verse 4. Well, let's look, read at the beginning of verse 4. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. The lure of luxury and wealth brought many people to Nineveh, but it did not yield life's true treasures. And so as a result, they were going to be punished by an almighty God. Now, what does it mean to sell nations by her harlotries and family by her sorceries. Well, I think the idea here is that they were like harlots. They used their charms to exploit other people for their for personal profit. So if Assyria wanted to gain an advantage, they would they would be like a harlot. They would sell whatever it would take in order to to get what they wanted. But not only would the the city be slaughtered for the most part. You saw that there's going to be corpses all over the place, uncountable bodies. 
But also, it's going to be a humiliating, humiliated city, verses 5-7. through seven. Humiliated city. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Okay, again, we see this indictment in verse 5. I am against you, God says. Nahum is repeating it for emphasis to show the certainty of, of Nineveh's doom that it doesn't matter how much uh, military power you have, it doesn't matter how well fortified your city is, I am against you. And then he talks about in at the end of verse 5 that he will lift up their skirts and show their nakedness. This was a probably figuratively speaking that is because it was a common punishment of adulteresses in that day and prostitutes that they would uh, expose these people in that way. And so this is probably referring to their spiritual harlotry or their harlotry of the other nations. And so God was going to humiliate them. And instead of Instead of mourning like we would expect expect at the destruction of a city, verse 7 tells us that there's going to be great joy on the part of people around them. Oh, who's really sad for Nineveh? Who's really sorry that that they're now devastated? No one is. Because we have been a recipient of their evil. And so there is great joy when this city is humiliated. Doesn't matter. I said, doesn't matter how strong their fortress is. In fact, God says that their fortress is nothing compared to Him. Verses eight through ten. Are you better than No Amon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, which, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. Now, what God does here through the prophet Nahum is show Nineveh, Assyria, that there have been other cities that have been well fortified like you. They have the river. This one had the river Nile coming into it. And so it's a natural fortification that someone would have to get... Uh, across the river in order to get to the city. And, and God's saying, listen, that doesn't do anything for you. And in addition to that, verse 8 talks about the river being its rampart or its strength, its fortress. Verse 9, they had all of these other allies that, that could have helped them in times of battle. And he's saying, this city, no Ammon, which is also Thebes, okay? he's saying, that city, they have been destroyed. So here's the point. If that city, so fortified and with more allies than you, Assyria, if that city was destroyed, how much more will you be? Or why would it be so hard for you to believe that it's impossible for you to be destroyed, for you, for it to be impossible for you to fall? You certainly aren't any better than they. No, Ammon, despite all their protection were sacked by the Assyrians. Verse 10, we see that. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. You see, if Thebes 
was vulnerable to God's hand of destruction, then certainly Assyria is as well. And the certainty of defeat is found in the last several verses, verses 11 through 19. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply, Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? See, Nineveh should not expect any other fate than what Thebes had already received. Verse 11, You too, like Thebes, like Lo Amon, you will become drunk. That is, you will be drunk with God's wrath. God will fill you up so much with God's wrath that you will be drunk. There will be nothing to, to keep you from, from His wrath. Verse 12, all your fortifications are like fig trees with ripe fruit. It's like shaping, shaking a fruit tree whose fruit is ripe. Or it's like uh, defeating women in battle. Verse 13, behold, your, your, your people are women in your midst. And then in verses 15 through 17, he says, just as the locusts leave nothing, so there would be nothing left of Nineveh after their destruction. It would be as if they, a swarm of locusts came in and wiped you out completely. That's what it would be like on your day of judgment in Assyria. And so, Nahum ends with, I think appropriately, a rhetorical question. Jonah's the only other prophet, the only other writer really in Scripture to end with a question in his book. And he says this, For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Who has has not felt your endless cruelty, Assyria? You, capital of Nineveh, who has not felt your cruelty? Everyone has. And so why would I not destroy you? And so the people of Judah are, are hearing this message from Nahum they're reading it and they're thinking, who is in control? And Nahum's trying to encourage them. Listen, you are not in control. Your enemies are not in control. It's clear that God is in control. But let's go back to what we talked about at the very beginning. Why is it so many times in life that, that it seems as if evil is winning and that God is not responding. Why does that happen? 
But do you remember when John the Baptist was in prison in Matthew chapter 11? He was pretty discouraged, wasn't he? Because Jesus really failed to meet his expectations. John had announced someone who would not only baptize with the Holy Spirit, but one who would come in judgment, separated the wheat and the chaff. He had learned that from the Old Testament. And so he was expecting this Jesus to come with a, with a sword and with power and to set up his kingdom. And yet here's Jesus preaching to vast crowds, training his own followers, performing miracles, but, but not imposing judgment on the wicked. It seems like he was allowing things to happen. And, and here's John. John the Baptist suffering in prison because he denounced Herod's illicit marriage. And why hasn't Jesus done anything to Herod? I mean, for putting him in prison, where is Jesus in all this? If he is that promised Messiah, where is he? He's supposed to come in judgment. And Jesus gives him an answer in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 11. We asked the question at the beginning, where is God in times of trouble? Where is He? John the Baptist is feeling this and Jesus gives him an answer. Okay, you're expecting me to come in judgment. You're expecting me to come with a sword. Chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Remember, John had sent his followers to... Jesus to ask him what was going on. Are you really the one that that was promised in the Old Testament? Or should we expect somebody else? And so Jesus answers them and says this, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. See, Jesus answers by describing His ministry in two crucial passages from Isaiah. But John the Baptist certainly would have known these passages. Yes, I remember these passages. And and if Jesus is going to refer to these passages, then why doesn't He bring out the judgment that's that's talked about in these passages? I mean, in these same references where Jesus says the blind receive sight and the lame walk, there's also talk about divine retribution and the day of vengeance. So John's thinking, where are you? You're supposed to be coming in judgment on this evil that is taking place in the world. And it's as if Jesus is saying, in effect, John, look closely. The promised blessings of the kingdom are coming. They're coming. What I'm doing does fulfill the Scripture exactly. If the judgment has not yet come, it will, but not yet. You see, God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and He he is forbearing. And what Jesus is saying to John is right now, you need to focus on the good that is being done. Focus on what I have done. See See what it says there in verse 5? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Focus on that. And let that confirm to you who I am. 
Okay, you're looking for something other than what I am intending to do. You see, God is just in His judgment. And although at times it seems like God is not there and that evil is winning all around us and that we can do nothing to, but give in to this temptation that is all around us, and, and yet our tormentors seem to have such great pleasure and our tormentors seem to be be enjoying themselves. But there will come a day when those tormentors, like Assyria, will be eternally tormented. There will come a day when they are judged for what they have done. And in finally delivering us from evil by destroying it, God will demonstrate to us His goodness and prove to us that He indeed did take notice of us. He took notice of those who were loyal to Him and who trusted in Him for protection. You see, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Nahum 1, verse 7. One of the best ways to be encouraged in our daily battle with sin in our own evil desires is to look at the rest of the story. So turn to Revelation chapter 20. Because sometimes we do have that thought, like John the Baptist, and we think, where's God in all this? It doesn't seem like He's winning. If I were God, I would do it this way. Where is He? And so sometimes what we need is just to be encouraged by the Word, by what is going to happen. That God is in control and that He is simply waiting. That, that He is taking His time until every... Christian has come to repentance until every person whom he, who he, whom he has planned will come to repentance. And so I want to close by reading Revelation chapter 20 where Satan, sin, and all those who oppose God will be forever removed from the presence of God's people, never to be heard from again. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for 1,000 years. And when the 1,000 years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints 
in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great throne, great, a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will, be, there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Where is God? Is God in control? When He seems far away and our enemies seem to be advancing, is He in control? Nahum says yes. John says in Revelation, yes. So take heart, Christian. God is in control. He has a plan. He will accomplish His plan. He has already won the victory through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's only a matter of time before His plan unfolds completely. And we receive the fulfillment of all of His promises. So trust Him. He will vindicate you, His people, in His time. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we're thankful that we do not serve a God made by human hands. We're thankful that You are the God of the universe who has existed forever and will exist for all of eternity. And that as one of our benefits of being Your child, we have the the joy of knowing that we can now take on immortality. That we will not die because of Jesus Christ. We don't have to experience the second death as we just read about, the lake of fire. We don't have to experience the separation from You for all of eternity. We don't have to have that sense for the rest of time that You will not answer us because You are not near us. But rather, we are are thankful for our position in Jesus Christ and the benefits that we have through Him that we are 
heirs of you and joint heirs with Christ of all of the great benefits and inheritance that, that you have provided. And in a way, we receive the same sorts of benefits as Jesus Christ because we are joint heirs with Him. And although at times it does seem that, that you are far away and that sometimes we admit that we feel as if you are out of control or you are not in control. We don't like to admit that, but we, we do sense that at times in our own lives because of the evil that seems to be winning. And so we are thankful for the prophet Nahum, your word through him, and for John, both John the Baptist and the Apostle, who have been helpful in our understanding of seeing that, that You are working out Your plan and we simply need to trust You. If we were You, we would do things differently because we think we know more than You at times, but You know more than us. You are a God of infinite wisdom and all of our collective minds could not even match up to Yours. And so we submit ourselves to You and to Your plan. And we give ourselves wholly to You that You would use us as You please, vessels fit for Your use. That we would be people who are, are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in the way that we act and even as we talked about this evening, in the way that we think. And we pray that You would give courage and strength to those who are doubting Your control that You would cause them to understand and see Your loving care and Your sovereign forbearance on the evil that is going on in this world, and that one day You will make all wrongs right. That You will vindicate those who are Your children. And we look forward to that day, and we do pray that our Savior would come quickly. That this sin-cursed world would be put away once and for all, and that we would be able to take great pleasure in spending a thousand years with our Savior and then all of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth with Him as well. We pray that our hearts would be knit with Yours and our thoughts would be like Yours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.